1: Big question, Pim, ever since Donald Trump's election uh, about bank regulation and just how much it would get rolled back. Well, to answer some of those questions or possibly give us some insight, uh, Scylla Brush, a Bloomberg News reporter covering regulation, wrote a story uh, with the headline, Trump May Save Banks Billions by Disrupting Global Rules. We want to bring in Scylla Brush himself to explain which rules are at greatest risk of getting rolled back. Scylla, thanks for joining us.
2: Great to be with you.
1: So, What do you think is most at risk? Which provisions uh, are most at risk to get rolled back to give banks more leeway at this point?
2: So one of the interesting things and the focus of this story is about a whole range of rules at the global level that aren't yet actually on the books. So it's an interesting situation where regulators at the global level are trying to finalize these new standards, and yet this election has just occurred and Donald Trump, president-elect, wants to, in his own words, dismantle financial regulations. So for rules uh, that are, aren't even on the books, it just makes it at least m- perhaps much less likely that they'll ever get on the books. So it's a different question than rolling them back, which he very well may do for plenty of rules that are already you know, on the books in the US.
0: Can you describe some of the controversial rules and what they might do to uh, the bank stocks and to their ability to generate profits?
2: So, some of these rules that, that regulators have been spending the better part of the year at the global level trying to to finish off are, you know, restrictions on banks' ability to use their own internal models to basically decide how risky various types of loans, corporate corporate securities bonds, and other uh, assets on their books are. And these are very complicated models, but the, they're basically used to determine how much capital banks have. So. You know, if, 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 these don't, if these new restrictions don't come on uh, for banks in the U.S. or around the world, then you know, the, the warnings from the industry were that these, these rules could cost billions of dollars, in some cases hundreds of billions of dollars. And they were generally going to be softened, uh, over the, they were getting softened over the course of the year. But now there's this big question about whether these rules actually make it on the books.
1: Well, and talk a little bit. I mean, Donald Trump is, is going to be the president of the United States uh, and potentially could soften rules in the United States. Why would this have such a big effect on global regulation?
2: So the U.S., uh, you know, there are these you know, several different bodies at the global level that try to set standards um, that work acro- around the world, that basically set minimum standards that every nation jurisdiction has to comply with. The idea, general idea is that they want to prevent regulatory arbitrage, banks moving from one jurisdiction to the next because the rules are, are softer and easier. Um, and the U.S. has several seats on these tables, uh, at these international tables, and they help set the rules of the road. So, you know, if these rules don't get put on the books and they aren't sort of enforced and implemented, then you, you start to get serious questions about, you know, what, what the sort of power of these international bodies is. It's too early to answer those questions, really, but it, it certainly raises the question. Uh,
0: as far as domestic banking goes, can you give us any insight into what are the hot button issues uh, for domestic banks?
2: For domestic, I mean, the US banks, so we've already seen sort of big concerns about, you know, what will happen about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, um, and that affects, uh, you know, a whole range of domestic banks and, and mortgages and credit cards and, you know, whether Congress at, at Trump's sort of direction or encouragement um, st- starts to change sort of the, the CFPB's ability to make, make rules and, and crack down on the industry. Um, that's a major area uh, that's already popped up since right. the election.
1: is a bond bloodbath out there. Will this continue or is this the time when we finally see yields peak and then stabilize? To answer that question, I want to bring in Eric Stein, co-director of Global Fixed Income at Eaton Vance. Uh Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you what, what do you think is this? Is this the start of a larger trend, a larger bond sell-off, or are we going to hit some kind of equilibrium here where yields stabilize? Uh, you know, I think it, it
3: certainly could be the, the start uh, of a larger sell-off. You know, do I expect to see you know, the sell-off like we've had basically? You know, every day. You know, we had the bond market uh, effectively closed on Friday uh, for the Veterans Day holiday, so we've really only had three trading days post the election. We've seen a significant sell-off. Uh, all of those days, really, a significant sell-off in the bond market since just about the the time uh, that that, uh, President-elect now Trump gave his speech about 3 a.m. Tuesday evening going into Wednesday morning. So I think most of the sell-off though has been an increase in inflation expectations. If you take nominal treasuries and break them between inflation expectations and real rates, there's been some increase on the real rate. A lot of it's also been an increase of inflation expectations.
0: What are you advising clients to do just sit tight and wait and see what happens, or is this the time if you got if you have gains in the bond market, take the gain and well, wait for a better time.
3: You know, I'm somewhat biased, but you know, here at Eaton Vance we do run a number of flexible portfolios. So our global macro strategy, our short duration strategic income fund, funds that can short, funds that can profit from higher rates or a stronger U.S. dollar, or higher inflation expectations. I think you know, if you think broadly in markets, you know, we've had declining interest rates. Um, you know, we had inflation expectations. that got the Very low levels. Now, those were picking up even ahead of the election, but I think it's, you know, we may be in for a very different bond market given that we're certainly going to have a larger fiscal response uh, that should lead to higher inflation. Whether or not leads to higher growth, I think, is still to be determined. Um, But I think, you know, potentially uh, there is higher growth uh, if we get some stuff on the tax and regulatory side uh, along with some targeted um, infrastructure spending. And so if we're in a new growth and inflation paradigm, we should be in a new interest rate and inflation expectations paradigm as well.
1: Okay, so Eric, since you have a flexible mandate, you can go in and buy. uh, At this point, at what point do you buy a 30-year bond at uh, 3% yield?
3: Uh, yeah, I want to I want to see it keep backing up from here, to be honest, or see you know a change in what people are expecting in terms of the the, the fiscal stimulus um, uh, that we're that we you know may be getting next year. I mean, well, I guess,
1: how, how do you even plan though? How do you how well, do we even if, we have no facts, right? Yeah, well, so, exactly.
3: So to, to me, you know, when this election occurred, that was, that was certainly surprising. The way I thought about it was, look, the distribution of outcomes has widened. So if you said you know, if we if, if Hillary Clinton had been elected and we kind of have a continent. Continuation, I should say, of the same policies, then we'd probably be in this kind of muddle through one and a half, two percent—not terrible, but not certainly not great growth environment. Now with uh, President-elect Trump now uh, being the you know, ready to take over, beginning in, in January of 17, to me the distribution's wider. If we get to massive amounts of protectionism, uh, that's that's probably a higher probability of a recession than we would have had, uh, frankly, under Hillary Clinton administration. However, if we get tax and regulatory reform and some targeted infrastructure structure spending, that's significantly higher probability of 2.5%, 3% uh, type growth. And I think the way the market's looking at it, and I think this is correct, is we're going to get more of the tax regulatory and fiscal side, the protectionism side, it's still to be determined. So I certainly agree with the tone of your question. No one really knows, but I'd say right now the distribution of outcomes is certainly a lot wider than, than, let's say, what it was uh, a week ago pre-election.
0: Eric, do you think that the increase in yields will have any effect on bond issuance by corporate borrowers?
3: Uh, you know, certainly, I think bar you know borrowers to some extent have been you know of, of all types of instruments, you know, uh, emerging market uh, countries, corporates have been, you know, to some extent expecting higher rates. I don't think anyone was expecting, you know, higher rates in the exact manner uh, and kind of speed that we're getting them now. But, you know, to the extent that they think we're going into a lot higher rate regime, which I don't think people really think, but, um, you know, maybe they'd want to issue uh, quicker um, and, and kind of get that out of the way with to the extent that, you know, they want to be a little more tactical and wait till markets will, will settle down, you um, you know, maybe maybe then they would wait, but certainly at some level uh, it gets it gets to be significantly more costly. That being said, rates from a historical perspective, uh, and even from where we were a couple of years ago, uh, are still at very low levels. It's just that they've they've rallied. You know, really since the the July time period, they've they've sold off pretty significantly. Obviously, accelerated that sell off uh, since the election outcome.
1: Eric, we've seen a lot of bonds sell off. We've seen uh, investment grade corporate bonds. We've seen emerging markets debt, and of course, Treasuries. Which asset class within fixed income do you think is the most dangerous right now?
3: most dangerous uh, it's it's to me probably uh, it's probably still to some extent treasuries um, just because of nominal treasuries I should say I, I like tips uh, I think tips are uh, good places to be if you do them on a if you buy them on a treasury hedge basis uh, I think you know US treasuries to the extent you know as I said earlier we're gonna we likely are gonna have higher inflation we're gonna have more fiscal uh, easing which is you know whether it comes from taxes or spending or likely some combination of both that means more issuance and so more issuance should weigh hand the Treasury market. And if we get more economic growth, which I think is certainly not a given, but the potential for being in a higher growth regime uh, certainly exists, um, You know, then those are three bad things. More growth, more issuance, and more inflation are all bad for nominal holders of, of U.S. Treasuries. I
0: wonder if you could speak to the issue of high-yield debt. There's been a big sell-off just looking at the iShares, iBox, uh, high-yield ETF. It's taking a look at down about four and a quarter percent since the beginning of November. What about high yield?
3: Yes, yeah, so, I mean certainly the you know you've seen across you know what I'll call kind of the riskier credit asset classes. So whether it's high yield or emerging markets, you know when interest rate if interest rates are just going up from kind of a real rate perspective, just the economy's you know growing a little bit faster, that that doesn't hurt those asset classes that much. But I think given the, the kind of shock of the interest rate move, which to me is again a combination of potential for more issuance, uh, definitely more inflation, uh, as well as potentially higher real growth. I think you're you you know. You going to see some dislocation in credit markets. You're seeing it right now in high yield. Uh, You're seeing it in emerging markets as well. So I think, you know, at some point, there's certainly going to be opportunities uh, in those asset classes, uh, whether on an absolute, uh, you know, kind of standpoint or kind of relative to to U.S. Treasuries.
1: So uh, real quick, what do you think is the best bet right now? Uh, best bet. So I, as I said before, I like tips versus um,
3: you know I like tips versus U.S. Treasuries. I also uh, you know I also like fl- so floating rate assets. So floating rate bank loans, uh, CLOs, those are attractive. Also certain types of mortgage backed securities, uh, IO interest only mortgage backs that actually have a negative duration. Uh, we have some of those bonds in our short duration strategic income fund. Um, you know those have been performing well uh, over the past couple days.
0: Thank you very much for spending time with us. Eric Stein is a portfolio manager and co-director of Global Fixed Income for Eat Vance. He helps to manage over $300 billion of customer assets. He is based in Boston. Samsung Electronics. It wants to get into your car, and it's spending $8 billion to do so. It has agreed to buy Harman International Industries. And here to tell us more is Alex Sherman, Bloomberg's mergers and acquisitions and deals reporter. Alex Sherman, always a pleasure. Tell us about this uh, recently announced deal to buy Harman International. I mean, I know we keep talking about the car, but is Harman just uh, uh, you know about automobiles, or does is- is it also about audio?
4: Yeah, so I mean, if you think back, you know, f- a few years now, maybe even decades ago, Harman was all about audio. Uh, the, the 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 JBL for right? sure, audio home system, uh, home audio system, Harman Kardon, yeah, exactly. Uh, it has gotten recently; it has moved much more into the connected car area, and that's for sure why Samsung made this deal. Uh, I, you know, I obviously everybody knows Samsung for mobile phones. People might be surprised that. Uh, they own about half of uh, memory chips and cars, so they're already there to some degree. Uh, and I feel like Samsung must have made the decision that if they really want to get into, uh, you know, audio and, and 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 sort of full-on connected car. Uh, acquiring Harman was the way to do it, because this game's all about scale. They realize they're probably going to have to compete against Apple in the next decade or so. Apple has sort of gone back and forth with about how they want to get into the car. It seems like they're going to do something, whether that means an acquisition or go it alone, still to be determined. Um, But this is a way for Samsung to sort of be a first mover here. Uh, So, you know, it's a fairly big price tag, $8 billion. From my understanding on reporting on this, uh, there were some other potential buyers out there. Um, we don't know who they are yet, so I will try to keep doing reporting. And if we can get a little bit more clarity on who they might be, they are likely to be other large tech companies because more of the auto guys, uh, $8 billion is a bit rich.
1: Well, OK, so Samsung is a South Korean Company and Harmon is a U.S. company based in Sanford, Connecticut, which raises the question that you addressed in another story uh, that you co authored with Jonathan Browning, uh, looking at how some Chinese companies are getting advice to pump the brakes on potential deals in the U.S. Uh, In other words, wait, take your time, see what uh, President elect uh, Donald Trump's policies are before making a move. Can you tell us a little more about that?
4: Yeah, uh so uh, I've spent the last uh the latter part of last week talking to deal makers and simply asking them a straight up question, you know, what does the Donald Trump election mean for this inbound Chinese to US specifically? Uh, you know, over the next four years or so.
1: Which we should say has been going gangbusters.
4: So that's sort of why I asked it. So volume for Chinese MA inbound to the United States is up like 30% over last year. It really was uh, getting off to sort of a rocking start at the beginning of the year. Um, and obviously, like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to think that maybe this may slow down, considering how outspoken Trump has been uh, about basically curbing Uh, businesses leaving the United States and going to China, and that's exactly what would happen in many of these cases if if China was to come in and buy a U.S. target. At least some of that business, you'd have to think, uh, would be rerouted to China. So my answer was sort of split. Uh, I had at least three uh, advisors um, to deals, meaning bankers or lawyers, tell me that they are advising their clients to pump the brakes and say, well, we don't really know what this means yet, but you'd be wise to at least figure out what it means before moving ahead with some large U.S. acquisitions. I had several other deal makers tell me that, no, you know, it's sort of industry specific maybe, but we are not seeing a slowdown yet. Uh, Chinese buyers still want to get into the U.S. They have a lot of money to spend, uh, and because of the uncertainty maybe, uh, they're not convinced that a Trump presidency will necessarily mean that they can stop making large U.S. purchases.
0: Alex Sherman, uh, just to focus on deals that we already know about, in addition to the Harman uh, International uh, deal by uh, Samsung, previously I know that you have reported on the Qualcomm deal to acquire NXP semiconductors. That was a $38 billion deal. Uh, During the summer, SoftBank uh, of Japan uh, purchased uh, Arm Holdings for $32 billion. Are there any more chip companies or uh, those kinds of companies left to buy?
4: Well, the world is getting smaller, but I would say the short answer is yes. I still continue to hear that sort of everyone is talking to everyone in chip land. This is something that was enormous in 2015. It has continued on to 2016. Some people really push the envelope with me and say, you know, anything's possible here. So uh, uh, some companies that we haven't really seen move yet are Texas Instruments, uh, they haven't made a big acquisition at this point. Uh, Intel bought Altera in early 2015. They that integration process is probably to the point now where they could buy something else as well. So yes, I would say we should probably expect a few more mega chip deals in the next year or so.
1: Alex Sherman, thank you so much for being with us, Alex Sherman of Bloomberg News on the latest mergers as well as the conundrum of what Chinese companies should do in light of the Trump presidency.
0: Taking a look at what's going on in the world of dividend paying stocks. Eric Irvin is the chief executive of Reality Shares. And Eric, thank you very much for being with us. Dividend paying stocks have been very popular with investors because bond yields have been so historically low. What is their outlook now?
5: Yeah, well, I think it's important to distinguish between, first of all, dividend-paying stocks that are focused on yield and dividend-paying stocks that are focused on growth, because that's been a tale of two markets indeed. The, the high-yielding stocks have been single best-performing sectors uh, or segment of the U.S. stock market since. Since the first part of the year, all the way through the end of the third quarter, and now they're almost the single worst performing segment of the of the S and P five hundred.
1: Wait, wait, just be- just back up. Can you explain the difference? I mean, basically, you're talking about uh, the dividend uh, paying stocks, like utilities or things that are just steady as you go, versus the dividend paying stocks that are dependent on um, the more you sort of uh, the more the economy grows, the bigger the dividend will be that you'll pay. I mean, you're basically putting those into two different categories, correct?
5: Yeah, exactly. Like, think um, of—I think it's perfect to point out utilities. So, so take a utility who's not really growing their earnings. They've—they've got their user base, they've got their their customers. They're not really raising prices. They're just focused on continuing to maintain the business and maintain the income. So that business is going to pay out a high portion of its income in the form of a dividend, and it's going to be fairly stable. Maybe the yield is as high as three and a half, four percent in that category. Now contrast that with, say, a Starbucks who is growing its earnings, growing its business, and not quite paying out as much of those earnings in the form of a dividend, but still paying a nice dividend, maybe one one5 to 2%. Starbucks is going to be growing its dividend over time versus that utility company, which is just going to maintain a stable dividend.
0: Yeah, but having said that, that the idea that Starbucks and other companies will grow the dividend, that's as much a hope and a prayer as it is a contract-enforceable
5: payment on a bond, correct? Yeah, exactly, and, and so welcome to the investment universe, right? Every, everything is really comes down to, do you believe this company is going to continue to do better in the future based on really what, what we value most, which is earnings growth? So can they grow their earnings in the future? If they can, likely that dividend will follow. And that's the same equation or question everyone asks, even if they're investing in the S&P 500 index fund, is, can companies in the S&P 500 grow their earnings? Otherwise, I'll go home and, and take my ball and play somewhere else, really.
1: So, Eric, you're, you're the CEO of this company, Reality Shares. Uh, you're based in San Diego. Before that, uh, you were at Morgan Stanley for, for 14 years, and you built a group uh, to help people manage their money. Um, are you talking with clients right now? I mean, do you get a sense of just how skittish people feel and uncertain about the future?
5: Yeah, I think so. And it's it's kind of ironic, too, because you get a lot of complacency. We've had, you know, seven now going on eight years of positive S&P 500 type returns. And I think a lot of people have, in a way, forgotten about market corrections and how severe they can become. It's... Um, you know, we all have short term memories when it comes to that. But well,
1: well just to that point, I mean, it's it sort of, I've got to say, I've been very confused as bonds sell off and stocks rally. At what point are people who are investing in, to your point, the dividend paying stocks or even just stocks broadly going to say, you know what, we're worried about losses again. We're going to go back to bonds. They're paying a little bit more. At least we can earn something.
5: Well, I think you've already started to see that, especially with these high-yielders. Like, utility sector was the single best-performing sector up until end of September, up almost 16%, I think, at the high there in September, just on a year-to-date basis. Not exactly your grandma's utility stock, right? And now they're only up about 6% on the year, so they've already given up nearly 10%. That's like three-and-a-half years of dividends wiped out in, in the course of just two months so I think that's the, um, that's the start of, of that kind of flood out of these high-yielding stocks and into, say, the bond market. Now, that's not happening in the, the growth, those dividend growers, because those were basically ignored for the first part of the year, just barely keeping up with the S&P 500. And now, all of a sudden, the industrials, the consumer discretionary stocks, those are the ones that are really moving kind of post-election here.
0: Eric, based on your experience, is there a particular percentage yield that causes more investors to flee stocks and go into either treasuries or CDs? Is there a point where people say, you know what, I'm willing to forego X in a company that's raising its dividend, but I'd rather go buy a triple tax-free muni or I'd rather go and buy a 30-year that's paying, who knows, maybe 6 7%
5: yeah it's um it's not as simple as it used to be. It used to be where if if you were able to earn a yield that was higher than a treasury in a stock um you do take that all day long and and the the last five years or so have kind of confused that issue where as bond yields have have swayed back and forth beneath the s and p yield that's been the real trigger point. but right now what you're seeing is with that kind of the S and P at around two percent. If we start to see bond yields creep, and by bond yields I mean the ten year, creep above that two percent to two and a half, three, and beyond, I think people will. It's almost there. Well, all of a sudden, yeah, yeah I to say, yep,
1: It's really getting here there. Here we come.
5: Mm-hmm. And I remember back to the days when you know no client could ever or would ever even dream of buying a municipal bond that paid six percent tax free or less. And then it was five percent, and then it was four, and now. I think people would, you know, kill for a stock or, a, I'm sorry, a bond that would pay something over three or four percent.
1: What do you think is the best bet from here to your end? We think it's the growth. Those those stocks that are just
5: healthy, good, solid businesses with modest PEs that what can are some grow. Names. Their, um Nike, Starbucks, some of these um, like Coca Cola. GE, MasterCard, Visa, some of the just just the good, solid growth companies that are out there that haven't really been um, given any You favor. consider
0: MasterCard a, a growth company as well as Starbucks? I mean, are they growing at those double-digit multiples that would justify the price?
5: Actually, they are, and and um, again, you know, these are companies that have been around for a long time, but they continue to to grow those those earnings and cash flows. And and again, with the um, the growth, we focus a lot on free cash flow because we're so focused on the dividend and that the ability to grow the dividend. But but that free cash flow growth has been double digits, and it's one of the few pockets of of the S and P, like I say, where you can actually find double digit earnings growth in a lot of these. Areas and it's not easy to do with multiples as high as they are. That's the other thing is I'd say back off of the gas pedal, and and just if if you if you're overweight stocks right now, maybe now's the time to just back off a little bit and think about other alternatives that might be a little bit more hedged.
1: Eric Irvin, thank you so much. Eric Irvin is chief executive officer at Reality Shares, talking to us from San Diego.